welcome to the, uh, what is it, the April Silicon Valley Speechwriters Roundtable. We're very pleased today that Felicity Barber, who's an executive speechwriter at the Federal Reserve Bank of San Francisco, is joining us. She's a communications expert specializing in thought leadership, storytelling, and speechwriting. And prior to joining the Fed, she ran her own business, Thoughtful Speech, for three years. When she set that up, I believe, when she moved to San Francisco from London in 2014, and in the UK, she was a speechwriter at the global insurer Lloyd's of London, which famously started in the coffee house in wherever, 1600 or something. And she's also worked as a policy advisor at the Home Office in London and as a parliamentary assistant to the Labour Party member for Islington South and Finsbury, Emily Thornbury MP. Her claim to fame is that she wrote a book that was given as a gift to Her Majesty the Queen. So, Felicity, first question is, did the Queen read the book? Um, well, I'm I'm told that she was presented the book. Um, it was at a, a lunchtime event uh, that she read the book. That one of her ladies in waiting tried to take it away, and she said, "No, no, I want to continue." So um, I I hold on to that fact, and I got a very nice letter from the palace. Um, what, uh, what was the book on? What What was the topic? So she was visiting Lloyd's of London, um, and. The royal family has a long relationship with Lloyd's. Um, the Queen Mother was a big fan and used to visit a lot. So, um, But mm. there were kind of anecdotes and imagery going back to, I think, the time of Samuel Pepys between Lloyd's and the royal family. So the book was on a history of Lloyd's and, and the royal family. And when did... So Lloyd's did start in a coffee house, right? That was... You know, these gentlemen used to meet and assume risk for, what, ships that were sailing to India or something? Is that... Was it like 1600? Yeah. yeah, so it started in the coffee in a coffee house owned by Edward Lloyd, and they would, um, and it was all ship owners, and they would share the risk of insuring each other's ships, and that's where the term underwriter comes from because they would write their names under one another on a long slip, and that's still how work, Lloyd's works today. A broker will go around, collect names, and um, and write their names and the proportion of the risk that they're taking on, uh, you know, below, below the names of, of other underwriters. Right, and they famously, I mean, the last, I think it's been a little bit of up and down, right, in the last few years. They've, they've had financial crises like the rest of the financial industry, I guess. Um, yeah, not, um, I mean, I don't keep abreast of them so much now, but not, uh, they had a very famous crisis. God, I think in the 80s or the 90s, but they've been, um, uh, they've they've done pretty well since then, yeah. as far as I'm aware. Yeah. Oh, well, that's great. Well, obviously, now you're, you, you know, it must have been an influential, must have been part of your background that appealed to the Federal Reserve that you were in the financial industry. But tell us something about, you know, as we were saying a minute ago, we've got Esri on the line, we've got Ruth from Canada me and you, and then a couple of token Americans, but you've worked in the UK, started speech writing. Was that job with Emily Thornberry your first, like, official title speech writer position? Or did, no, did you so um, Emily, the job that I did with Emily Thornberry, it was my first job after I'd finished my master's degree, so I was um, a parliamentary assistant doing all kinds of things. And then I held a few different jobs in communications, went to eventually joined the corporate communications team at Lloyd's where there were two speechwriters and I'd been writing for a really long time. I'd been um, actually writing a blog since I'd graduated, um, which had done pretty well. It just got picked up in kind of British newspapers and other places. And I'd never really considered the career of a speechwriter. I'd never met a speechwriter. The closest thing I'd come to a speechwriter was, you know, watching the West Wing um, and, you know, Sam Seaborn, obviously. And then there were two speechwriters at Lloyd's, and I was like, wow, that's such a cool job. I want to do that job. And um, a position came up on the team, and I said, you know, I've never written a speech before, but here's all this other stuff that I've been writing. And um, a really amazing woman there called Fiona was like, I can work with this. Give me six months to whip you into shape, and, and we'll make a speechwriter out of you. So that was my first um, kind of proper uh, speechwriter job. And, and 
and I know I think you wrote an article on this when the first year or so you moved to San Francisco, um, but you've got, you obviously have a, having, I mean, I've never worked in England apart from some sort of baby step jobs, but you've been in the communications role on both sides of the Atlantic. And we are going to talk in a few minutes about sort of gender issues and, and speech writing for men versus women. But what, what are you kind of summary observations in your experience about is there a difference to writing speeches in the UK versus what you see in the US these days? Um, I haven't found there to be a drastic difference. I mean, I've always found... Um, I actually started writing for One American when I was in London, and he was always really lovely. You know, if there was a speech and then there was a dinner afterwards, he would say, like, oh, thank you so much to Felicity, which is so rare as a speechwriter to get that kind of um, public acknowledgement, I guess, that you exist. So that really touched me, and I... I think there may be, of my very small sample size, um, a bit more of an acknowledgement uh, in the States that, yes, speech writers do exist and, um, and, and that's okay. Um, we don't need to kind of hide in the shadows. But um, apart from that, you know, everyone's voice is so different and their style of speaking is so different that I haven't found there to be a kind of giant like uh distinction where I'm like okay I'm writing for an American I need to you know do this it's more about listening to their voice and um and thinking about uh how that is completely distinct and how you're going to work with that yeah yeah I mean I've always thought that one of the things you read and Mike Long and so on talk about this on their blogs, and, and it's kind of common uh, knowledge uh, that um, speechwriters don't necessarily, you can't assume if you go into writing a speech, like being, well, ghostwriters for books sometimes get their name in smaller print under the author, but often you aren't acknowledged, and that just comes with the territory. I was actually surprised to see in Vital Speeches that there are 25-plus winners, including you got the honorable mention, uh, for speeches that were delivered by other people, which, you know, it makes it public that there are speech writers. But in many cases, the the principal or whoever you call it, the person delivering the speech, might or might not acknowledge it. Sometimes, I mean, the general public are often totally surprised that, oh, you mean so-and-so has a speech writer. Um, yeah. Yeah, it's really... Um, but I often think people who have speech writers are really great writers themselves they just recognize that it takes a lot of time and if you're giving if you're in a position where you're giving a lot of speeches um a speech writer i mean you know preaching to the choir but the the speech writer a speech writer is a really great investment because um you know they can they can invest the time and you can be the CEO or the president or whatever it is, um, and and focus on on the other really important bits of your job. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, let's. I mean, the focus of this conversation is, and it was advertised as sort of women speaking, and and it was brought about when in Vital Speeches of the Day, David Murray published an article that you'd written about notable women speech, women, you know, delivering notable speeches, um, including one by the. Um, Marjorie Stoneham Douglas student, Emma Gonzalez in the news. And I mean, before we get into any specific, because you've got quite a number of uh, speakers that you noted in that article, Oprah Winfrey and so on. Um, I mean, obviously you're a woman, you're a speechwriter, and what's your, I mean, general perspective on women speaking? Is that, is that too broad? We can dive into specifics otherwise. But in what area do you did you first sort of think about highlighting this as a topic? Well, I, um, one of the first people that I wrote speeches for was female. And, um, you know, when I was first embarking on this career, I was reading a lot of speeches and people would give me a lot of speech anthologies. And, you know, I was always really disappointed because there was kind of maybe one by Eleanor Roosevelt, one the famous um, UN speech that Hillary Clinton did, uh, Women's Rights are Human Rights. Um, uh, but 
basically maybe one by Margaret Thatcher but you know there was like a kind of handful of like a token nod to women's public speaking and then 90% of the other speeches were by men and it's just really frustrating because it's not that women aren't doing public speaking they definitely are it's just that whoever is putting together these books um doesn't always recognize it so you know particularly around international women's day i'm always thinking about this stuff and thinking okay what can i put a record out there of the women who have done some great speaking in the last 12 months just so that we kind of recognize that it is happening and that you know particularly in 2018 women are making a huge contribution to um, a lot of the kind of public and policy and social issue debates um, that are taking place at the moment. So when I was putting together that selection, I was really trying to identify kind of what are the big issues that we're facing and who are the people who are um, making a big difference and, and talking about it. And obviously after um, the Marjorie Stoneman Douglas um, shooting, you know, the one comment in the media has been that, wow, these teenagers are really changing the world and they're actually standing up and saying, you know what, this is going to be the last shooting in America. Um, and we haven't really seen a mass shooting where there has been so much um, activism kind of alongside the outpouring of you know, grief and despair in the wake of, a, of an event like this. Yeah, well, um, I mean, it was, you know, one of the, I did a little analysis of those 25 category winners in vital speeches, and no surprise, most of the speeches were delivered by men. Uh, many of them were written by men, and but I think you're right that the, um, the, the well, it, I mean, it's not just in public speaking. It's you could say, in like in any business meeting, there's been lots of studies that show women's contributions can be. It's an uphill struggle for women executives, say, to have their name heard. There's there's all kinds of debates about that. Um, but you mentioned Marjorie Stone and Douglas, and Emma Gonzalez was highlighted in your article. Um, so tell us a bit more about the impact you think Emma and the others, especially the young women are having through their speeches and how they tie it into, of course, their social media presence as well. Yeah, I mean, at the moment, we're seeing this kind of big wave of young people who are standing up for issues that they believe in, which, um, you know, is really encouraging and inspirational. And um, Emma Gonzalez has obviously become kind of completely emblematic of um, the the debate around um, gun control in the US but you know one of the other most prominent speakers of her generation is Malala Yousafzai I've included her speeches in um, other article you know kind of compendiums of women speakers she obviously you know has the platform of the UN so she is giving the kind of uh, full speeches that um, are getting covered and that's really exciting but there's loads of other teenagers that are coming out of this generation who are using um, social media and the, the platforms that you know are just kind of so readily available to them that even for my generation like social media was just kind of starting when I was at university um, so we were all kind of really skeptical about Facebook and should we join or shouldn't we join, all of that kind of thing. But I've, I've particularly seen a lot of transgender youth standing up um, and talking about LGBTQ rights, um, which is really exciting because uh, I think, you know, from a gender perspective, that is a really huge debate and issue and Obviously, he's not a woman, but um, I was uh, watching thing about a teenager, um, Gavin Grimm, who's taking his fight to use the boys' toilets in his school. Um, I think it's uh, kind of at the Supreme Court at the moment. So um, there's loads of 
yeah, exciting things happening and social media has obviously just exploded that and allowed um, these young people this kind of platform for activism that previous generations just didn't have access to. Mm -hmm. And, and um, so, I mean, we don't want to go through each and every speaker that you uh, listed in your article, but you had Oprah Winfrey, Anne Hathaway, uh, San Juan Mayer, Carmen Yulin, Cruz. Um, is there a, 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 something you can mention that struck you about, you know, pick one or two, and what was your, uh, what highlights do you think they brought to speaking? Sure. I mean, the Me Too movement has been one of the big issues of the last 12 months. So I really wanted to pick one speech that represented that, and that was really hard to do, particularly because Oprah Winfrey gave that speech at the Golden Globes, and actually at that Golden Globes ceremony there were loads of great speeches, I think, um, particularly from the cast of the show Big Little Lies, Reese Reese Witherspoon made some, has been making a lot of powerful remarks on this subject, but obviously just because she has this incredible platform, you know, it was Oprah Winfrey's face, which was um, everywhere <laughs> the next day, and it was really great to see someone who does have such a loud voice, not just in the US, but across the world, um, take up this campaign and make a really strong statement about it. Um, I wrote this article for International Women's Day and actually it was on the last International Women's Day that Anne Hathaway made the speech about parental leave. Um, that one was kind of like a no-brainer for me because I have a two-year-old. I'm expecting another baby in August. So parental leave is kind of top of mind, but it's really shocking to me that, um, you know, there isn't protected paid leave time in the US. Um, and I actually, you know, if you're interested in women's public speaking, I really love the UN Women Instagram um, uh, handle or account because they publish a lot of quotes and um, that's a great kind of route into finding lots of inspirational speeches that are uh, by women. And then, you know, the San Juan Mayor speech was. Um, I think women in the public eye, I mean women and men in the public eye, particularly politicians, you know, present a kind of very polished like exterior for obvious reasons. And then there are times when people just completely let go of that and kind of let their emotions take over. And that's quite a high risk place to be for women because, you know, we've historically being accused of being kind of too emotional and too hysterical um, and it was you know she kind of picked the right moment and I think touched a lot of people with basically a desperate plea for her homeland saying you know <laughs> we're dying here and, and we need your help and and I think that connected with a lot of people yeah yeah and actually, I, I, I don't want to put you on the spot because we didn't discuss this before the call, uh, but um, I hope that you, you probably noted, I, I certainly heard it on the radio, this week in Parliament Square in London, they yeah. unveiled of the 11 men, his statues of Winston Churchill and the rest, Millicent uh, Forsyth. Uh, yeah, which was fantastic news and, you know, about time. you want to share who she was? I mean, I'm looking at the Wikipedia entry. I'm cheating, but just for those who might not immediately recognize the name. Um, I mean, she was a really prominent British suffragette. She, yeah. You'll be able to correct me. She was, um, was she sister to um, Emmeline and Sylvia? You'll, I, you'll be able to. I don't see that. It says... Um, it, what's interesting is, well, actually, and I, I did read about this recently, there was suffragettes and then there was suffragists, and apparently that yeah. was like a, a more moderate. The suffragettes are the ones who chained themselves to railings and one famously threw herself under the king's horse or something and died. But it was a huge struggle, of course, uh, which involved forced feeding and all kinds of horrible things that, I mean, it makes, I wouldn't say it makes the Me Too movement pale, but I mean, they, they put their lives on the line. And it says in the Wikipedia, I just glanced at this, that she joined the suffrage committee in 1869, spoke in public, and spoke at Brighton 
Her husband was a politician, an MP, and as a speaker, she was known for her clear speaking voice. And, you know, it's interesting that it's taken over 100 years for them to, you know, erect a statue of any woman in Parliament Square, which is kind of, I guess, an iconic place that the great and the good are recognized in England. And yeah. now we finally have a woman. Uh, and uh, many, I mean, people have heard of Emily Pankhurst. I'm sure many of those women were campaigning by speaking in public against, you know, sort of barrages of jeering men and so on in, that, in back in the 19th century. Yeah, and, you know, also in the UK, there's just been a, a huge fight to get Jane Austen, I think, issued on the new £10 note. Um, and then some of the people that were campaigning for that had experienced a really horrific time on Twitter with trolling. So there's definitely a cost to, um, you know, putting yourself out there and, and advocating for something that you believe in. Yeah. Another speaker that I'd never heard of, but you were maybe closer to it, um, having left England more recently, and, and the Grenfell Tower fire that consumed that tower block. And there was a video that I looked at, and I don't know how you pronounce the name. Is it Ms. Barbara Raver? Or there was a, yeah, there, was that, who, that a kind of a Ms. Raver, who knows? Yeah. She, was that like a pseudonym for that woman who I – mean, anyway, she, yeah. there was a woman who spoke out in a house – in an inquiry, right, about the tragedy where these people died. Yeah, and I really like that speech um, because, I mean, I know there's a lot of Brits on the line. I grew up just a few miles down from the Grenfell Tower, which was this horrific um, fire in a, in a block with, you know, hundreds of flats in it and the kind of cladding of the block caught fire and loads of people weren't able to escape. And I, I don't know what the most recent count is, but I know that over 70 people, including children, died in that fire. Um, and really the government response was just not adequate. Um, and that was the kind of overwhelming sentiment after the after the incident that it was really volunteers and the, the third sector that stepped in to help people who'd lost their homes. And I just thought that speech was such a great one because it was completely impromptu. Um, it wasn't one that had been, I mean, if you watch it, it was clearly not scripted. It was deeply powerful, really emotional. And it was also the kind of speech that wouldn't have got out if it wasn't for the fact that we all basically have a video camera in our pockets these days and you know when you listen to the speech there's a lot of controversy around the fact that someone is um, filming in the parliamentary room where the speech took place um, but I just I just thought that her words really exhibited the sentiment that people were feeling in, in that community at the time, which was that, you know, the government was was not there for some people who who really, really needed um, support in a big way at the time. So I just, I thought it was really exciting because one of my favorite speeches um, is the entire woman sojourner truth speech, but there's a lot of controversy over what she actually said because it wasn't documented until 12 years after she first gave it and um, so you just think you know what if back then someone had a, a phone and, and Facebook and, and could broadcast it and then we, know, we would know you know the actual words that she spoke. Uh, sorry who was that you said about a missed um, so Sojourner Truth who made the Ain't Woman kind of famous anti-slavery um, speech in the US um, in I think it was the early 1850s um, oh. oh yeah yeah but there's a lot of because that spe speech was never recorded until over 10 years after she made it nobody knows exactly what she said um, so you know you just wonder if if people had a a video camera and Facebook or whatever um uh, over a hundred years ago, you know, we we would have that record. Yeah, yeah, and and then uh, so the other, I mean, and by the way, people should know that those people we referred to and the link to the uh, 
lady, woman in the House of Parliament inquiry, that's all in the vital speeches of the day article. If they go to that website, search for your name, they'll also see you wrote um, an obituary to Denise Grevelin, is it, uh, who passed away and was a speech coach who you'd actually met. So what can you tell us about Denise and her work and how you met her? Well, I was really, you know, as I said at the start of the call, I've always been like, where are the... Where are the women making speeches and where are the records of the women making speeches? And then um, years ago, I came across Denise's blog, The Eloquent Woman. Um, and I was like, wow, this woman has dedicated all of this time. I mean, she was the most prolific writer um, documenting the speeches. You know, every Friday she would have famous speech Friday and she would highlight a speech that was made by a woman. Um, so when I came across that blog, um, I and then I was going to DC for a conference, I was like, I'll email her, maybe she'll meet me. And, you know, she did. She We went out for lunch, um, and I was so grateful to her because I was just starting out um, running my own business, and she'd obviously, she was really established. She'd been doing that for decades, and she was just really open, warm with her advice, um, and also just told me how uh, how she managed to put out so much content, um, which uh, was, you know, I think after her passing, like, I will miss that blog so much because she would just um, really was the only person documenting women's public speaking and women's speeches and then also analyzing and saying what worked and what didn't and why. Um, so she was, you know, I'm always so grateful when more senior seasoned speech writers are willing to, or speech coaches, uh, willing to to share um, with me, and and she was so generous in that. So I, you know, I really um, that meant a lot to me, and I was really really sad to hear that she'd passed away. And obviously, I didn't know her particularly well. We would keep in touch by email after that, um, but uh, yeah, I just wanted to kind of publish something and have something out there that she. Um, you know, wasn't just incredibly skilled at her job, but was really happy to kind of take the time to offer some mentorship to the next generation as well. Well, um, who said the baton has now been passed to a younger generation? Was that JFK or somebody? Maybe, maybe you should jump in. And <laughs> now, <laughs> yeah, well, you, you could block well, the, my uh, baby. <laughs> well, yeah, you know, you'll be... Uh, <laughs> I mean, I, 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 let's put it this way. Maybe there's somebody else who's... Uh, who's positioned but it sounds like you've got the you know the awareness there I don't know <laughs> uh, yeah, not, yeah. not putting you on the spot but it sounds like a, a low-hanging fruit if you've already got the article you could do a a little update on a I don't know about every Friday maybe once a month um well here we are at the Silicon Valley speechwriters roundtable and of course it's kind of a weird name because anybody can lie, sign in we just get on the phone we don't like have a restriction to those people working in and around, although you work in uh, in close, pro well, Silicon Valley includes San Francisco these days, I think, what with Uber and everybody just down Market Street from where you are. But um, there's been, the, you mentioned the Me Too movement, and there's been a focus on women in tech that, I don't know if it started with Sheryl Sandberg's Lean In, and how many, uh, it, it's well worth checking out if you're interested in the woman's role in the tech industry and startups, this book by Emily Chang called Brotopia, which is you know, kind of a, a strange world for some younger women in the tech industry who get basically harassed from the day they go for the first job interview. Do you, do you have any particular insights or opinions about women in tech and the need to, I mean, you've got a few sort of ones who have a voice like Sheryl Sandberg, who Actually, my daughter graduated from Barnard in 2011, and she gave the commencement speech right before the book was published on that topic, Lean In. It's on YouTube. But do you, do you have any opinion about the tech industry as a, as a venue for women and their voice and the challenges they face? Yeah, I mean, I think that it's a challenge in a lot of industries. Um, and, you know, Emily Chang has said 
like actually things in tech are worse than in Wall Street, which is really shocking. Um, and you know, I've I've worked with some tech companies. My husband is actually in tech, and I I I sometimes get frustrated because I think there is a big focus on women to you know, quotes, lean in um, to advocate for themselves, ask for that pay rise, ask for that promotion. And I've written speeches about diversity and inclusion that, that talk about these issues, but I also feel like that somewhat detracts from the onus that there needs to be on companies to create workplaces where everyone can thrive and where it's not just about you know, everyone has the right to work in a, in a workplace where they are free from harassment and discrimination and get equal pay. That's like a kind of total no-brainer. But I really think if if companies want to retain talent, you know, they need to make sure that they're creating a work environment where people feel really wanted and really valued. And I think, you know, a lot of the kind of rhetoric or the narrative around these issues is sometimes really vague um but i've seen you know my husband for example he's like constantly trying to bring diverse talent into um into his company and work with diverse boot camps so it does require a really big effort on the part of the company but i think it definitely you know, organizations need to get on board rather than wringing their hands or saying women need to need to speak up more. Um, and I think it's really uh, it's it's really hard because as as a woman, you're kind of you know I've done it myself. Like I've always thought of myself as confident. I've uh, you know, got my education, like, yeah, I'll go out and get any job that a guy can get. But then I've definitely been in that situation where that kind of nasty critical voice has nearly talked me out of going for a promotion. I thought, oh, if they wanted me to go for the job, I, someone would have asked me to apply. Or So I think it's, you know, you can tell people to go and lean in and advocate for themselves, but sometimes even um, if you're like really aware of those narratives, you don't necessarily do it for yourself. So I think it's really great when, you know, people can support each other and say, hey, why don't you go for that job? You would be great at it. Or, you know, the um, I think I read something a while ago about in the Obama administration, how when women were getting interrupted in meetings, other women made it a point to say, I think we should let such and such finish her point I think she had something really valid to say um, so I think it's hard but I think we I I don't think the narratives around women advocating themselves should detract or take over from the conversation that needs to happen within organizations um, that yeah. uh, you know create healthy workplaces basically yeah, it's, uh, without going into a detour here, I think it's interesting. We started out talking about differences in the UK and the US, and I don't know about other people who've emigrated from Britain. Uh, I mean, there's classic sort of, and this is a huge generalization, right? The, but the American psyche tends to be more into self-promotion maybe than the self-depreciating Brits who... Uh, of course, there's many British immigrants who've done excellent work, uh, who've had great careers over here. And but I've always felt a little like out of my depth sometimes in my career. And I'm a man, but there again, you've got your. We have our British accent, and somebody famously said to me, "Ian, you could say fuck you," and it would sound educated in a meeting. <laughs> Not that I do that. Anyway, moving on. Um, so that was the tech industry. And of course, you know, you started out in, in well, you've worked with the, uh, Emily Thornbury as a member of parliament in England. And, and politics is also, of course, an area where women obviously are in a minority. I think in all cases, right, the, the House of Parliament has a minority probably of 
women uh, members and certainly the U.S. Senate and and House has minority. But there again, we've had high-profile women and the most famous, most recent example was the one who a lot of people thought would be the natural uh, follow-on to Obama as the President of the United States, Madam President, who was not to be. And I think it maybe is instructive to speech for speechwriters to sort of evaluate Hillary Clinton's speeches and their, their, you know, the audience reception or lack of reception. Is there any observations you've got about women in politics? And I mean, you mentioned Margaret Thatcher briefly. Uh, we, we, there's a British prime minister and a German leader who are women. Um, and, and, you know, in this country, we've still got one or two prominent women um, who speak out. But any observations there, especially as a speechwriter who might be called on to create compelling speeches for a woman politician? Yeah, I mean, um, I actually recently went to hear Jennifer Palmieri speak, who is director of communications for Hillary Clinton's campaign. And she said herself that she underestimated how hard it would be to get a woman elected. And she also said um, that, she was really blown away by the number of people who would come up to her and say, hmm, there's just something I don't like about her. And I think that speaks to the fact that we're still uncomfortable with female leadership and, you know, women who display the fact that they are ambitious and want to be in positions of power. Um, And I think that was a... That was a huge challenge for the Clinton campaign that um, was never quite overcome. And I think also that, you know, I think anyone in the public eye needs to have a really, really thick skin. Um, And if you are a woman, you need to have a rhinoceros hide um, because... The nastiness, you know, social media is an amazing platform, but it's also the nastiness on there. Um, You know, the British historian Mary Beard has had rape threats. Lots of women who've been campaigning on kind of feminist issues have had all kinds of rape threats, death threats, really disgusting language leveled at them. Um, and really, you know, women I've worked for really snide personal comments made about them on the internet. And I don't think it's easy to just kind of brush that stuff off and say, oh, they're just the crazies on the internet or whatever. You know, I think, I mean, sometimes it's just downright scary. Um, So I think it is really... I think it is harder to be a a female public figure than to be a male one. There's also the issue of dress. You know, men can stick to a straightforward suit and tie and they're not going to stand out. But as a woman, whatever you wear is going to be analyzed and scrutinized. You know, it's the first thing that people always publish about um, appearances by Michelle Obama or, you know, Hillary Clinton, the pantsuit has become this like iconic outfit. Um, so I think, you know, it definitely is harder. The one really exciting thing that we've seen in the wake of the last election is just so many more women running for public office. And I think once it becomes more normal and people like Angela Merkel aren't the kind of total outlier, hopefully we will start to see that level of criticism recede because, um, you know, it's uh, it's really unpleasant. And I don't mind sharing with you, I in 2010, I decided that I was going to run for local council in the area that I grew up. Um, the guy, I, I was in my very early 20s, the guy who was um, running the campaign asked for a nice picture of me to put on the campaign literature. I, you know, I just started my career. I didn't have anything like headshots. So I sent him a picture of me. I was wearing a nice black jacket. I was standing outside 10 Downing Street. I had been on a, a visit there recently. 
7,000 print uh, posters are printed. They're distributed in the area where I grew up. So this is where I went to school, all my teachers live there, all of my friends, obviously my parents. Um, and this guy had used a picture of me outside Dun Downing Street on the back of the poster, but on the front of the poster, he pulled a picture of me from Facebook where I was in West Africa with a python wrapped around my neck. Um, huh. So that was, you know, I, I was working for Emily Thornbury at the time, and she was like, one day you'll laugh at this anecdote. I was totally mortified at the time. Um, but I just had a tiny little taste of my own experience of how hard it is to kind of, you know, control your own image and how people sometimes do some pretty unpleasant things for no apparent reason whatsoever. Um, so, yeah, that was my own tiny little experience of... Uh, of of running for political yeah. office and the perils of doing so. Well, so uh, just to clear up, so he was meant to be on your side, and he was yeah. right. Yeah, yeah, this was from my own side. This wasn't from okay. this wasn't from the opposition. Oh, I thought you were going to say like somebody defaced them or something when they were put up, but no, you're no, saying this was like, no, oh, okay. no, okay. and I mean I received a lot of sexist comments also from within my own side you know people um were saying really nasty things um uh, about my appearance you know down at the pub objectifying comments that would get yeah, back yeah. to me and i was like wow these are the guys who are going out and supposedly campaigning for me every weekend um well, so it's not a, it fun a learning thing. experience so by the sound Definitely. of it, it was a learning experience. <laughs> i think okay. i'm better suited to speech writing yeah. Well, on that note, well, it's kind of a, uh, hopefully, um, yeah, you, you obviously survived and thrived. And, yeah. <laughs> um, it, we've got half an hour left, and I'd love to hear from, I think there's about seven or eight other people on the call. Um, so anybody on the call, we just, uh, if you are muted, unmute yourself, and uh, get, if you have any comments or questions uh, for Felicity, uh, go ahead. Hi, Felicity. It's Esri. Hi, Esri. Hello. Um, a couple of years ago, there was a really interesting piece. In, I, I can't, can't remember exactly where I saw it. about Michelle Obama's speechwriter, um, and who is also a woman. Um, and but the thrust of it was very much the closeness that they were able to generate because they'd worked together for a long time. Is that is that a factor that you think? sort of plays into it almost as much as, as the gender issue that if you're working with a, a, a woman speechwriter it's it's how long you've had to build the relationship and and how closely you get to work together rather than necessarily the gender yeah i mean i i don't think whether you're writing for a man or a woman you know an american or a brit everyone has their own distinct voice and i haven't found one to be any easier or more difficult than the other. Like every everyone is their own distinct case with their own personality and their own voice. Um, you know, I moved from freelancing back into going in-house last year. And part of that was that kind of desire to build the long-term relationship with the principal and not be kind of skipping between lots of different clients and have that ability to kind of really work with someone on thought leadership and um, uh, develop a narrative over time rather than being kind of called in to more ad hoc projects and and that was one of the things that appealed to me and that I was missing. Um, I think they both have their pros and cons but that was something that you know, I mm. I wanted to get back to you and I think can really add value because the more you write for someone, the more you get to understand their point of view and their tone of voice and um, and where they're trying to, you know, take take their thoughts and ideas. But I'd love to read the article. Send okay, I'll, I'll see if I can, I'll see if I can find it. Yeah. Thanks, Cesare. Yeah, this is Jerry. Good to hear from you. Thank you so much, Felicity. It was actually Alyssa, uh, Alyssa Mestromonaco at the White House 
who had that uh, strategy of women backing one another up. Uh, okay. So, so my, my question is, with specifically with the women that you're working for, are you finding and or encouraging uh, surfacing stories about gender inequality in their rise? Because just as thought leaders are being asked to essay on a wide range of topics that aren't about their company's core competency, uh, there is this moment. And, uh, I mean, I've, I've written for a bunch of women, and I, I also am an advisor to a diversity and inclusion platform. So I think even where your clients are hesitant to write about things uh, that don't speak of, you know, wonderful moments, <laughs> uh, it's, it's powerful and important. So I'd like your thoughts about that. Yeah, I mean, I never am going to push someone into talking about issues that they don't feel comfortable with. Um, the women who are really exciting to write for are the ones who do want to do something on gender equality. And, you know, I did my master's degree in gender studies, so I'm pretty invested in the, in the subject. Um, so, you know, that's always really... But when men or women actually want to talk about the issue, that's always, you know, and not just about women, about diversity in mm-hmm. general. So that that's always really exciting. And then I, I feel like I can add a lot of value when it comes to, um, you know, drawing out the stories that deliver the message that um, someone wants to make and... Um, so yeah, I I adore writing those kinds of speeches, but I I never feel that it's my place to kind of push someone in a certain direction or um, you know make them talk about something that they're not comfortable with because mm. then they're not going to be doing something that's true to themselves and I, and ultimately I don't think the speech will will work. Um, but yeah, when there's some, when someone is willing to talk about it, I'm I'm right there with my my laptop. Okay, and just finally, this is longer than 12 months ago, but I wanted to commend Lana Wachowski's speech at HRC on trans rights and her coming out, which I thought was one of the best speeches in that domain that I'd heard. Period. Sorry, whose speech was that again? Lana Wachowski. Who, you know, she and her her part, her brother, formerly, they both transitioned. They are the directors of the Matrix trilogy. Oh, okay. I um, I'm not sure whether I've seen that one or not, but um, oh, that gives me gives me some more reading to do or watching. Yeah, it's a phenomenal speech. It really is. I guess there's one really obvious. I, I didn't ask it in the preamble, but. I know it was in my notes. Is there an, I mean, we talked about, was it Michelle Obama's speechwriter was a a woman, uh, Hillary Clinton's. Is there any kind of uphill struggle or easier role that a female speechwriter would have with a woman versus a male speechwriter with a woman? I think it's probably pretty okay. Like you as a woman speechwriter have written for men and women, as have I, because I worked for many executives in Hewlett-Packard and Cisco who were women. Uh, and, but is there, is there any issues you see as regarding the gender of the speechwriter and the, and the speaker? Not really. I mean, I've always found that that relationship is kind of down to personal chemistry. I think people always appreciate it when you, you know, can bring new perspectives to the conversation around an issue um, that you, that, you know, they want to talk about. But I haven't found, like, wow, I have a much better relationship with um, female principals than with male principles it's um you know the best principles just appreciate you for who you are and the skills that you bring to the table and there's not a kind of um i haven't found there to be a great difference um 
So, yeah, there's no there's no special relationship. It just depends on the person and, and whether they like your work or not. Okay, okay, that makes sense. And uh, so one last question. I mean, which way are interest rates going? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you must have the inside story, right? Should I sell bonds? Yeah, I can't talk about that, I'm afraid. <laughs> I know, I was joking. <laughs> but it's interesting that... Uh, you know, you, you, I think with Lloyd's as a background and your financial uh, role in the Federal Reserve, it's, it's a great niche or a great area of expertise that you've got uh, increasing in, uh, experience with um, beyond, you know, what, what this is the Silicon Valley speech rise around table, but financial aspects of speaking. I mean, th- those, got, those have to be, in a way, challenging concepts to communicate uh, in clear English, although maybe with Alan Greenspan, he didn't want clear English. I don't know about your principle right now. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, I mean, I've just learned a huge amount, and I think that's one of the things that I've always um, loved about speech writing. I remember my mentor, Fiona, said to me I was working on a, a really technical even if I say so myself, quite dull speech about uh, an area of specialist insurance. And she was like, Felicity, no knowledge is wasted knowledge. Um, so, you know, wherever I am, whatever I'm doing, it's always the people that you're writing for tend to be subject matter <laughs> experts. Um, and it's great to to learn about them and, um, you know, get this, like, little insight into a world that you would have no idea existed if you if you weren't a speechwriter. So yeah. that's always been yeah. great. Okay, I have something great. to add. This is Sharon. Yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. Hi. Hi, hi Ian. Long time. Nice hi. to hear your voice. Um, I, I came in a few minutes late, I apologize, and I heard you talking about Emily Chang and Brotopia, which I just recently um, ordered but haven't read yet. And I, I just had some, I have some history with the VC groups, and I was curious what you were saying because I missed some of it. But um, I hate to ask you to repeat yourself, but would you mind like, just what the, have you read it? Have you talked to her, Emily? No, um, I, <laughs> I'm ashamed to say I've done neither. I did listen to a really long interview with her, and oh. you know, a lot of the stories were really shocking. And one of the things that she said that really interested me is that this kind of stereotype and tech of the introverted, um, antisocial male kind of plugging away at his laptop was created when a company asked, um, when a tech company asked another company to do a kind of personality profile of the ideal coder. And kind of prior to that, women in computing had been really... um, Ostracized uh, and limited. Yeah, you know, well, women had been really normal in computing and, and mathematics. Yeah. It wasn't, it wasn't the stereotype which now we kind of just accept as red and in Silicon Valley. So, I mean, I feel like it is important to lean in and to bear all that stuff in mind. But I actually feel like there needs to be kind of more structural change in organisations and companies, not just in tech and in other industries too, that. Um, you know, make workplaces where everyone can, you know, do their best work. Um, and uh, that. Where, where could I listen to the interview, or is it something that is online? Oh, it's on. It's on NPR. So, uh, just in addition to that, Noam Cohen's book, The Know It Alls, specifically charts the rise and history of Silicon Valley and denotes the fact that during the 70s, women were almost 50-50. So there are distinctions between the East and West Coast and the pursuit of the the dollar as opposed to academia at MIT. He bifurcates MIT and Stanford, and that has a lot of implication for gender. Yeah. Well, the the early history of computing, women were the programmers. I mean, it was seen as women's work, so to speak. Mm -hmm. And uh, I've, I've got Protopia, I've read it, and uh, oh. it, 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 unfortunately it will be known, I think, for its chapter six. <laughs> chapter six is called Sex in the Valley, Men Play Women uh, 
women okay. pay. And it's, uh, <laughs> it's basically about orgies, which I, I've been living here for 40 years and news to me, but I don't have, I'm not a venture capitalist worth billions, but apparently there's a certain subculture of uh, which she writes about at length. So, but it's got a lot of serious, uh, um, I, well, it makes the point nobody, you know, there's, it's like nobody was forced to participate in, you know, like in chains. Maybe they did like chains, I don't know. But um, there was, uh, you know, there, there was this obvious wealth inequality and uh, it's what very, well, it, she makes the point that a lot of these guys who are now worth hundreds of millions couldn't get a date in high school and blah, 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 and she goes down that road. And now they've got money, you know, suddenly women find them irresistible for whatever reason and they exploit that. So, you know, it's like when the when the senior politician um, makes advances, and you know, mm-hmm. this, you know that that level of that power imbalance mm-hmm. or whatever. But, but there's a lot more to it than that. But it has been sort I of highlighted it. as that. Yeah. yeah, it's a it's a good read. She's a good writer. Yeah, thanks, Felicity. Um, one last chance. Anybody? Any comments occur to anybody? Finally, we've still got a few minutes. I had one comment. This is uh, Teresa Zumwald. So. You know, whenever you have a conversation like this, it's always good to say, okay, what can we do to change things? And I think, Ian, you had done some statistics when you shared, when looking at the, um, the vital speeches on the, the latest winners, um, of which Felicity was an honorable mention winner, of you kind of did a breakout of how many males were speaking versus females. And the statistics, again, are kind of skewed. And I'm wondering... You know, what can you do to change that such that it's more 50-50? And, and I'm wondering if there's a way that you can suggest for, perhaps to an executive, does the executive always need to be the one who's speaking, the chief executive? I mean, is there a way where if you had a more progressive executive that he could suggest maybe that a woman who's a vice president perhaps deliver some kind of a, a speech at a conference or at an important event in, in a way to start getting some more diverse voices out there. And I'm wondering if anybody has an ideas on if any, you know, progressive organizations are doing that where you've got somebody yep. that's maybe saying, I'm not, I'm not going to speak this time. I'm going to have so-and-so who's in a, uh, a woman who's in a high-level position, maybe not the, the, chief, the CEO, but give another a voice out there a chance. I don't know if anybody has an experience in that realm. I mean, I've definitely worked with some progressive CEOs who have been really great at um, championing their senior women. And I think one of the things that's been really great to see over the last few years is this woman, this movement to have no more all-male panels. Like, there's nothing more depressing than seeing a conference line up and it's like 20 men speaking and two women. And then I've also seen some people online starting to pull together lists of um of you know women different subject matter expertise um who say that you can go to those lists um and i really appreciate that because um many years ago i used to organize a lot of conferences and um actually in the realm of economics and it was so hard to find female speakers but we were kind of absolutely determined not to have to you know to never have that all-male panel um so i think movements like that and when you can say hey what about getting the woman on the team to do the presentation and get the exposure um i think that will start to move the needle slowly slowly um but i've found the statistics equally depressing (laughs) right and and i'm wondering if the speechwriter depending on the relationship that he or she has with the ceo for example and this is just an example you know have the guts to say you know what about having so-and-so deliver this address this time you know to make some suggestions to get some more diverse voices out there and you know if if nobody ever speaks up it's never going to change and um, so I don't know. It, I just thought about that when you were speaking, and I think when you gave those statistics, you know, and I even wrote down where are the women making speeches, you know, where are they? And, you know, we might need to, you know, I don't want to say force the issue, but kind of change the game in, in terms of is the default always the CEO, or can we be introducing some more diverse voices in our organizations? And, and you know, who can do that? Is the speechwriter perhaps, you know, responsible in one aspect to suggest that? You know, let's hear from so-and-so. And, and the diverse voices can go way beyond women, for sure. 
Um, so I, I don't know. It's just a, you know something to think about, and you know if you ever have the opportunity, maybe we should all do that if we have the chance to to make that suggestion. So this is Jerry, if I may. Mm-hmm. I actually, again, I advise a diversity and inclusion startup called Pluto, and I have studied this space. I can share some resources. So I work at a civic hall, and our focus is on social good startups, civic tech for short. Uh, one example of a group is Women Who Code. Uh, I just interviewed the head of the New York, the founder of New York City, and their core mission is mentoring younger engineers and developers with senior women, and part of that training is in public speaking. Hmm. Uh, A lot of what we do, like Emerge, is part of our uh, community. Emerge was founded 10 years ago to help women run, and they've placed 3,000 women have done their training. And of those who have run, 59% of one office. So be involved in, in these things apart from being a speechwriter would be my suggestion that there are so many suggestions, there's, there's so many groups that I come into contact with and there is enormous room to ask them about how are you being inclusive, uh, what are you doing for folks with disabilities, for people of color. At the conference we do at Civic Hall, 67% are women, 33% are people of color. We never have the problem anymore because the conference is in its 15th year, and at least for eight years it's been the initiative. It's not a problem when you build that infrastructure, but you have to start with a brick. Right, and and just to give you an example, this week I attended um, a Chamber of Commerce event in our city, and we had a a woman speaking, and people were racking their brains, literally saying, when was the last time we had a woman give the keynote at this annual meeting? And nobody could come up with the year. And, and this woman, and, you know, here's the thing. So she was from Key Bank. They were making a huge gift to the chamber of a huge grant for a program. So it's almost like, do you need an excuse to have, <laughs> to have a woman give the keynote? But, you know, nobody could think of, has it been 10 years? Has it been 12 years? Has it been 15 years that we had a woman so, give the keynote at the annual meeting? So the, grand, the grandmother of all this is AnitaB.org, and they, they are behind the Grace Hopper Conference. And they are a resource to all sorts of companies, not only technology, about gender inclusion. They had a male ally conference that I went to two weeks ago, and they're just anitab.org. They shortened it for Anita Borg. Could you, could uh, you repeat that again? I didn't catch yes, that. Yes, okay. org. Okay. And they huh. do amazing work. They're, they're national, and they're a great resource. Well, thank you. Uh, and I'll just chime in um, outside of the corporate world. Um, I was actually a member for 10 years of a group called the National Speakers Association. You can find them at nsaspeaker.org. We used to joke it was the NSA that spoke, not the NSA that listened, which is the other one in, in the East Coast. And the National Speakers Association is mostly entrepreneurial individuals who don't eat if they're not good speakers. So I got a lot of techniques and tips from them. And some of the, and there's a, quite a large percentage of women who make a good living speaking from the podium and whether they're selling vitamin supplements or talking about mm. self-improvement or, or doing Cal OSHA trainings, which some of the local people do. Uh, one of the better known ones who, who is, um, uh, used to be a past president, fellow Brit, uh, the sister of one of the King Crimson lead guitarists, is Patricia Fripp, who David Murray has scheduled for his PSA, Professional Speakers Association Conference, later this year. Um, It's not the corporate world, but those women are some pretty powerful speakers that you can find on video. Um, Like, look at Fripp. Just go to fripp.com or whatever it is, F-R-I-P-P. And... uh, they rock, you know, they're, they're not beholden to a hierarchy, to a, you know, that kind of corporate fascism, if you want to call it that, that prevents people of quality rising to the top. They rise or fall on their own merits. And uh, it's pretty inspiring to see some of those women delivering uh, a variety of speeches in, in various auditoriums. Um, well, we're almost at the top of the hour. Uh, Felicity, I, I really want to thank you. Um, any last comment before we wrap up here? I mean, it's great that you spent an hour and plus with us today. 
you know, just to echo Teresa's comments, let's, you know, get more um get more women speaking um get them speaking about the issues that are important to us and you know uh document whether it doesn't have to be a blog but on twitter or social media or wherever when those speeches are happening so that they um so that they kind of get the recognition that they deserve um but right. also just thank you for having me it's been great well uh, thank you i mean this is very lively i think it's one of the more uh, lively um provocative kind of meetings we've had. Um, I'm hoping to schedule another one of these in June or July. Uh, I've got a commitment from Matthew Keivel, who was the grand award winner from Vital Speeches of the Day, Cicero Awards, that he'll come on a call. But we might be able to slip somebody else in before. And if anybody on the call either wants to be, you know, the, the featured person, um, these things are, you know, zero cost except your time on the phone, or, or you know of people who speech writing, uh, speech writers would find of interest. They don't need to be other speech writers. They could be, say, speakers, uh, maybe women speakers. Uh, let me know, and we'll get a call together. So thanks, everyone, for your time this morning and this afternoon. Uh, this has been the uh, April call of the uh, Silicon Valley Speechwriters Roundtable. H have a great day. Mm -hmm.